Salima Hamarani, and on today's Making Contact. On the night of Grenfell when it happened, I was sleeping, and then I got a call from my sister who was living in the tower. And I picked up the phone and I answered it, and she told me that Grenfell Tower was on fire. The issue of building safety is on everyone's mind after the Miami condominium collapse. But the most unsafe buildings across the world usually house low-income people of color and immigrants. You could see that it was spreading rapidly. I mean, within five minutes of the helicopter being there, there was already half one side of the building was already on fire. Our friends at The Response bring us this piece about the Grenfell Tower fire in London, which happened in 2017. We take a look at why it happened and the battle to find justice for the survivors. Welcome to Making Contact. Today we're going back a few years to London in the UK when a huge fire ripped through an apartment building housing many immigrants in lower income communities. It ended up killing over 70 people. The disaster highlights the structural racism that led to unsafe housing conditions and has a lot to teach us about building safety in the modern era as well as community organizing after lethal and preventable tragedies. Our friends at The Response and their host, Tom Llewellyn, bring us this episode and a quick content warning. There are people's first-hand accounts of the fire and its aftermath, which might be disturbing for some of our listeners. Here's The Response and their piece on the Grenfell Tower fire. Grenfell Tower is actually situated in a very, very diverse part of Kensington and Chelsea, and it's mainly North Kensington, which has a very long history of attracting many diverse communities from all over the world. This is Fatima Elganuni, a healthcare provider who worked closely with families in Grenfell Tower before the fire. You've got the sort of the Windrush generation that came over in the 40s and 50s. And then in the 60s and 70s, you had a lot of economic migrants from North Africa, from Bangladesh, from Spain, Portugal. And then in the 80s and 90s, More recently, you've got sort of the refugee communities, you know, people from the war-torn countries. So it has a very rich, diverse population, but also quite a poor community. And that section of North Kensington is kind of very secluded and very isolated because Kensington and Chelsea is the richest borough in the UK, if not Europe. And it's a very stark divide because you've got the really super rich living just miles or a few doors away from a very, very impoverished community. It really is dramatic, the differences in wealth and equality that exist here. Here's Joe Delaney, who is living just a minute from Grenfell Tower on the night of the fire. Financially, socially, educationally, in terms of health expectancies and health outcomes, The part of the borough that we're in now, North Kensington, has some of the lowest life expectancies in the country. Men are in the 60s, late 60s, average life expectancy at the moment around here. 
go a mile that way towards Kensington Palace and we're talking top 80s, early 90s. In just that short space, there's a 20-year difference in health. The history of the Notting Hill and Kensington areas is fraught with social unrest and class war going back decades. And there's a disturbing history of racially motivated violence on the community, too. The culmination of which were the Notting Hill race riots that took place in the late 1950s, where a mob of hundreds of white supremacists committed serious assaults, terrorizing the local West Indian population. The fight in this community against institutional and interpersonal racism has always intersected with their struggle against economic inequality. And there couldn't be a more fitting symbol of this inequality than the flammable material, the cladding that transformed the Grenfell disaster from what could have possibly been a contained single unit fire to an unprecedented calamity. I mean, the reason that cladding was put on that building in the first place was that certain people around here didn't like the look of the building and they wanted it to look prettier. And that was why more money was spent on the exterior than was spent on the fundamental issues that bedeviled and beset the residents on the interior. The type of cladding used at Grenfell is actually banned in the United States for buildings over four stories high. A fireproof form of it would have cost the local council only a few extra thousand pounds. But it wasn't rare for costs to be cut in this way. In fact, residents were always complaining about the poor conditions in the tower. Things like the fire sprinklers and elevators weren't properly maintained. There's even evidence that a residence group made repeated warnings of catastrophic fire risk. Warnings that were ultimately ignored. Grandfather happened because there was that lack of support. This is Nabil Shuker. His family lived in Grenfell Tower at the time of the fire. Maintenance, the standard safety that they should have been doing, you know, not listening to people complaining that this fire door is not safe and um, having problems with electrical and heating and gas and everything else, people all complaining, and the, the local authority not listening, but caring more about themselves rather than the people that lived in the tower. It's like as if it was purposely done. It was this neglect that ultimately resulted in Nabil losing his mother, his sister, his brother-in-law, and his three nieces. During uh, the search into the early hours where we kept looking and searching shelter after shelter after shelter, we were given some hospitals that they might be in. And we were told they could be here, they could be there, or maybe this one, try this one, try that one. We started visiting hospital after hospital after hospital. From the early hours right up to the night time. We found out roughly around two and a half months later, they gave us the first confirmed and identified family member that had perished in the fire. And then they kept giving it to us days and weeks, one member at a time. During the two and a half months of waiting, we 
was always living with the very, very slim hope that they could be alive. We didn't want to give up total hope because they deserve to have that chance that if we could find them or we knew that they were alive, then no matter how slim it was, we wouldn't give up on them. Because I wouldn't like anyone to give up on me if it was very slim. Her voice, my sister's voice on the night, when she left me a voice message, it was like as if she was saying goodbye. It will always be etched in my mind for the rest of my life. My name's Naila Ogununi and I'm 13 years old. Naila is a survivor of the Grenfell fire. She's the granddaughter of Fatima Elganuni. During the night of the fire, Fatima's pregnant stepdaughter, her granddaughter Naila, and her two other children escaped down 18 flights of stairs to safety. But the amount of toxic smoke Naila inhaled before she'd get out of the building put her into a coma. That's the condition Fatima found her in at the hospital the next morning. When Naila finally awoke two weeks later, her whole life had been flipped upside down. My journey as a survivor was a very difficult journey. In the beginning, it was very hard because after I came up coma, I had a tube in my neck, which meant that I couldn't speak. So I was communicating with my nurses through a chalkboard. So I'd write stuff down if I wanted to tell her something. And like every day my family would visit me. And then like when they went home and then it was just me by myself. I couldn't sleep in the hospital. I was constantly awake, thinking about everything, everything that's happened, thinking about where people are, what's happening outside of the hospital. And then when I came out of the hospital, I got, like, very upset because I just found out, like, who died and how many people died. Like, I wasn't expecting that many people to die. I wasn't expecting that many people to get hurt. It was just very overwhelming and very surprising. Sometimes I will just try to convince myself that everything's okay and they're in a better place now, don't need to worry about them. But other times I feel like I'm I'm very upset and I just want to cry and yeah. Since the fire and after my health has deteriorated and my high blood pressure and everything else has all increased, my weight has increased. You're not eating meals, you're not sleeping, you're having regular nightmares. You know, so much is going on. You know, you're in a very bad mood, low mood, depression and everything else. And it has had an effect on me. But you know something, I am still going to carry on going and until I have the last drop of blood in me, you know, I'll keep on going and fighting.
Two years later, the impacts of the Grenfell fire are still unfolding, and the trauma from the disaster has brought the community together to seek justice and make sure that something like this never happens again. I was by no means a community activist before this fire. The most politically engaged I was was voting. And I'll confess there that I didn't even do that very consistently at times. Since the fire, I felt a sense of obligation to do things. This sense of obligation motivated Joe to become a tireless spokesperson for the Grenfell community, devoting his life to bringing those responsible for the fire to account and improving the government's response, which has been marred by misallocated resources, delays in relief, and disregard for the pain and suffering of those affected. In the process, he's appeared countless times on TV and radio news programs. Here he is on Russia Today, critiquing ex-Prime Minister Theresa May's response to the fire. Her meeting with Grenfell Tower residents last night was an utterly unproductive waste of their time. And she wanted to show that she was doing something, when once again she's not doing anything. As I have repeatedly said since the start of this tragedy, the authorities are trying to manage a PR disaster. They really don't care about the humanitarian one, which happened on the night of the fire and which is ongoing since, and which they are worsening since. And Joe isn't the only one who has been speaking up since the fire. On the one-year anniversary, they did a big silent walk. There was thousands of people there. And after we finished marching, we went to a big park and there was a stage. And I went on the stage and I read out my poem to the thousands of people watching. And I felt like that helped me because I was expressing how I saw things to other people. So, like, people that may not know what happened or may not know how the people that lived there felt, I felt like I was almost in a way telling them how I felt. That silent walk that ended at the park where Naila read her poem is actually an event that takes place on the 14th of every month. It's an opportunity for the community to come together and be heard through a powerful demonstration of collective silence. During the mile-long walks, the streets become filled with people carrying green and white banners and wearing green Grenfell hearts, which, after the fire, became a symbol of hope, unity, and love, and a way to remember those that were lost. The walks are so quiet that it feels like you could literally hear a pin drop, which is incredible when you think about this all happening right in the middle of a bustling city like London. Sometimes you don't need to speak to have your voice heard. That was a response in their piece on the Grenfell Tower fire, and you're tuned into Making Contact. We're just jumping in to remind you that you can get more information about our shows and get behind-the-scenes information on our website, radioproject.org. And now, back to the show. The events that I attend are very helpful. I like going on the silent walks and stuff because I feel like I know many people there, so I feel like we're all like together in a sense. I feel like we're all walking for the same cause and we all share the same pain. We all feel the same things. So I feel like it's very like nice. Naila's also found it helpful to speak with other people her age who were impacted by the fire in a group that's called Young Grenfell, 
The Young Grown For is a group where young people meet up every week and we sit and we talk about how we can recover after what happened and how we can learn to feel angry and upset at the right times and the right place. And if we do feel upset and angry, how to control it and how to overcome it. Although it's not always immediately obvious, simply speaking about trauma can be a transformative experience in the healing process. This is something that many of those impacted came to learn in the weeks and months after the fire. It's been an absolute roller coaster. This is Pedro Ramos. He was one of five police supervisors on duty the night of the fire. So I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, I remember it like it was yesterday, 19th of July, 2017. I was sitting on the balcony and I was actually having a cigar and I just went into limp panic mode, um, found my wife and went to hospital and I was told that, yeah, you're going through some sort of anxiety attack, um, panic attack. The next day I went to see my doctor and he was the one that said to me straight away, you definitely have post-traumatic stress disorder and you need to seek help. Since his diagnosis, Pedro's been going to therapy regularly and it's made a huge difference for him. We in the emergency services, not just the fire brigade, not just the ambulance service, but doctors, nurses, aid workers, we don't talk about trauma. And it has really kicked me up the bottom to try and share the message that the issues around mental health and PTSD is real. It's recoverable. You can live after it. But we need to talk and we need to be open about it and you need to be honest with yourself, not be scared to be vulnerable. Uh, This is the community garden and they've just been doing gardening and flower planting, vegetable planting, building allotments. They're also undertaking a tree planting project. Every victim from the tower All of the 72 from the tower and any deaths that have been attributed since the fire as well, so the suicides or the respiratory deaths and things like that, uh, they will all have trees planted in their honour somewhere around the borough. Each and every one of them will. There's another community garden called Kids on the Green, a place where youth can get together to get their hands dirty. They also put on circus acts and even have a recording studio. There are actually so many little projects like this that it's hard to keep track of them all. From art therapy, to the reclaiming of public spaces for memorials, to taking over community centers and even starting a choir, the community has come together to build ties that help to heal the collective trauma. These initiatives also provide a path to strengthen their connections while laying a sort of foundation that can empower them to more effectively fight for justice and equity. And of course, there's the wall of truth. What I wrote on the wall around the side was um, the authorities let us down, but the community raised us up again. Um, It is a recurring theme around here. There's a few phrases that you're going to see around here again and again and again. Uh, Corporate manslaughter will be one. Institutional indifference will be another. And um, the final one will be social murder. There's a very good book called After Grenfell, 
and it looks at the structural causes. They talk about the slow violence that produced this moment of acute violence. This is Flora Cornish, a researcher at the London School of Economics who's working on a project with community leaders to document their response to the Grenfell fire. Some of the important themes they identify are about institutional racism, stigmatization of social housing, deregulation, and austerity. Those are the big structural forces that underlie this disaster. The government response has been frustrating. There's been a sense of letdown, delay, and non-responsiveness. And I suppose that response itself is also a product of neoliberalism that produced the conditions for the disaster in the first place. I think for me, the key things that I've learned since this tragedy and in the immediate response is that when people respond as human beings, things can be done. Here's Fatima El Ghanouni again. And I think responding as human beings is what we do best as human beings. And also, I think to respond to anybody, you've got to have relationship with people. You've got to understand your your community. You've got to understand who they are, what they're made up of. So the cultural awareness of how people respond to grief, how people respond to disasters, how people respond to anxiety, unless we understand the people's cultural norms and, and practices, we won't be able to make the response a meaningful one. One example of this was the counseling given to survivors and the families of the deceased. 70% of the bereaved population have Muslim backgrounds, and many cultural differences were overlooked by the official response. So understanding your community is crucial, and responding culturally is, is a necessity, because otherwise people will perceive it as meaningless. For me, it's inspired me to take the energy of that humanity and that love and just to kind of build on it, and when you build on that, you kind of give the voiceless a voice. But it also allows people to see that their stereotypical view of, of a community may hinder growth. So a lot of people are very surprised and shocked that this community can organise memorials and marches and change policies. And, and I think they're surprised because they see a migrant, impoverished community is probably not being able to do that. And that's sad because what they're doing is that they're actually not capitalising on all the resources and the skills that are in that community. I would say that some of the trauma that is affecting this community is not solely a bereavement or having witnessed something incredibly traumatic. It's a social and structural trauma of not being able to assume that your landlord is capable of making sure that your building is safe. Not living in a borough where you believe you can influence the local authority to take good decisions on your behalf. Those are sort of structural things and addressing them takes collective action. Efforts to bring about structural change that will make lives safer and better. At the same time, other people are reclaiming community gardens or reclaiming a community centre and making positive things happen locally where people can come together, plant trees and make a nice space, cook together, 
run clubs for children together. And those are, as well, collective healing that doesn't rely on this difficult long-term goal of improving social housing or getting rid of cladding off other buildings. They're just good in themselves and they're part of contemporary, ongoing collective healing. Since the fire and after the fire, justice has come in many forms. It's not just, you know, seeking a prosecution. It's not just looking for answers, but it's also about healing. It's also about uh, knowing other things about the other family who knew my family and lost their family that we didn't even know about before. And, you know, to hear stories, beautiful stories, about that particular family or certain families, I don't think you'd have ever known about these people had Grenfell Tower never have happened. I've definitely changed so that I can um, be one as part of them and be all one, standing together, hand in hand, fighting for one thing. Grenfell Tower is a tragedy, a tragedy to be retold. All the lives that were lost is all because of a small cost. Everybody should always be prepared because you never know when smoke will fill the air. We saw the flames that caused us great pain. We don't know who to blame. Whoever it is will always carry a great shame. To this day, people's screams still echo in my ear. I am still unable to cope with the fear. 152 is the number on our door. We lived up high on the 18th floor. The thick black smoke covered our vision. However, that didn't stop us completing our mission. Our mission was to escape the blaze. Our journey down was like a maze. The smoke alarms didn't go off. Our early alarm was our neighbor's knock. When we left the building, I was so relieved. It was the moment I knew I could finally breathe. All the people that were unable to leave are all the people that we now grieve. Shame on the person that allowed all those innocent people to die. However, now we know they're flying up higher. like to extend our appreciation to everyone who trusted us enough to share their stories. The fight to hold those responsible for the fire accountable is still very much ongoing. The struggle grew beyond just Grenfell itself to the 102 public housing blocks that were still using the same kind of cladding. Tenant groups and local activists are fighting to make sure that the disaster that killed 72 and impacted so many others never happens again. Criminal and civil cases were bolstered by the release of the official 838-page Grenfell Tower Inquiry Phase 1 report in the fall of 2019. In an interview for The Guardian, Grenfell United described the findings, which had been over two years in the making, as being a strong report with a forensic examination of the events of the night 
and clear recommendations that if implemented, will save lives. A key conclusion was that the 2015-2016 tower remodel, which included the installation of the flammable cladding, was not in compliance with official building regulations, despite being signed off by the local building department. The public court case, which began earlier this year, was suspended on March 16th, just before national shelter-in-place measures took effect. Officials are currently weighing options to restart the court case over video conference as early as July. That was Tom Llewellyn from The Response and their piece about the Grenfell Tower fire in London. And that does it for today's show. You can find out more information on our website at radioproject.org. Visit us on Twitter at making underscore contact. Follow us on Instagram at making contact radio project or leave us a comment on Facebook. The Making Contact team includes Monica Lopez, Anita Johnson, Sonia Green, Sabine Blazin, and I'm Salima Hamarani. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. <laughs>